Hello and welcome to Who Watches the World Cup with me, Dominic Archer, and a real in-person David Bryan. Hello, David. Hi, Dom. High five. Yeah! That wasn't even over the internet. That feels really good. It feels so much better. Uh, It's great that this is our final episode and we actually get to do it together. That's really nice. We're kind of celebrating a little bit. You will, uh, dear listener, get to enjoy us eating a pizza while... uh... Oh my God, how is it? Very good. Yeah, it's a chicken and pesto. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it cost us about one ninety nine. Money well spent. Yeah, absolutely. So the the World Cup is finished. A month of of heartbreak and excitement has has come to an end. Do you have any final thoughts before we actually get into uh, get into the match? Um, I think this can, this can go down in history as a very good tournament and. I don't think a lot of people were expecting that. Mm-hmm. I think we went into this tournament thinking it was going to be predictable and the state of football in the world right now doesn't offer that many surprises and it's in Russia. So I think maybe people were maybe hoping or maybe just expecting it to be a bit of a disaster. Mm-hmm. Whether there'd be crowd trouble or whether Putin would get involved in some... <laughs> and some whack some people. Yeah, just in some obnoxious way. But I think it's been a real great, on the whole, real great celebration of football and Besides a couple of instances which we actually only took place in the final, mm. there's not really been anything. No, there haven't been any disasters. It's just, it has just been a great carnival of football. Well, before we get into the final, we do have the match, I think, the single most important match of the entire tournament that everyone loves the third place runner up contest. It, that should really be on the Sunday, and the final's on the Saturday because no one cares about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel. <laughs> I feel really sorry for whoever gets to play in the runner-up match because no one wants to be there and no one gives a shit who wins. So the good news, it was England. We did it. (laughs) Yay. So it was England v Belgium. When we played Belgium in the group stages, we, uh, well, both sides kind of played their B teams, didn't we? Um, Our B team lost to their B team 1-0. How did we do in the, uh, the match where we actually put out our best players? Did we put out our best players? Ooh. We, I think, saucy. Uh, maybe yeah. that's not just the sauce from the pizza. I'm feeling there. No, no. Although I'm spitting it all over my computer right now. Mm. Um, well, what um, I was expecting, I think I mentioned it in the the previous a previous episode, was that I thought it would be just that both teams would would put out their second string players, make sure that everyone who made the journey got to have a little bit of pitch time, or mm. you know, at least play most of a game. And maybe there'd be some pressure from these uh, players' clubs that they would come back and start doing their preseason as soon as possible without any injuries that may have very unfortunately been picked up in, like what you said, and both mainly, I know, um, subtextually you meant to say that this was a pointless game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, it would be annoying for the clubs and for the players that they picked up an injury in this game. It doesn't really mean anything and it follows a disappointment of being knocked out of the tournament. So on the whole... The team, I think the team only showed four or five changes. So we saw Phil Jones come in in defence for Kyle Walker. Oh, God. We saw Eric Dyer come in in midfield for Jordan, uh, for Jordan Henderson. That seems like a good, a good yeah. spot. Uh, Loftus-Cheek came in for Dele Alley and Fabian Delph came in for Jesse Lingard. Right. Um, oh, and also Danny Rose. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't have mentioned his name. I hate Danny Rose. I, yeah, I knew, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have mentioned him. I didn't even know that he existed a month ago. <laughs> now, you know that the FBI has a most wanted hit list. <laughs> Danny Rose, he is pretty near, he is the almost, no, he's high, he's, he's high, high on the what, list. Top three, top five? Top uh, at least top five. Top I five think. on Dom's hit list. Wow. <laughs> Danny Rose. Danny Rose, you better look out. <laughs> <laughs> so Danny Rose came in for, for Ashley Young. Um, so it was a bit of half and half, and I suppose... Um, Belgium did something similar. Looking at their starting lineup, Tillemans uh, started, who hasn't started every game. Um, but actually, maybe they only made one or two drastic changes. And other than that, it was their strongest team. And whether there was uh, some knocks that needed to be taken into consideration, I think Kyle Walker had picked up a bit, bit of a strain in the in the quarter uh, in the semi final. Sorry, so it made sense that he'd be replaced. And maybe it's just more tired legs. I think we've talked about how. Uh, the likes of Deli Alley and uh, Jesse Lingard looked like they're getting a bit leggy out there towards the end of um, the latter stages of the, both the quarterfinal and the semi-final. And maybe it's a surprise that up top we didn't see any changes. It made sense that Harry Kane 
starts considering he maybe wants to try and secure that golden boot mm. but from at least what I saw I don't think he's really been at anywhere near what his the caliber where he should be since maybe the first knockout game um, other than after that he seemed very off off the boil off color off pace and it's another one of those, I think it's maybe one of those instances where if you're going to pick a captain for the tournament he's going, he has to play every game yeah it's not like Bel- uh, Brazil where they can't decide who's going to be their captain so they just just rotate it amongst three players for every game that like we picked our captain and therefore he has to lead our team every game and he should have been our best player mm-hmm. um, and to begin with at least in the group stages maybe he was our most important player but as the tournament went on I think he was getting more uh, sorry less, less and less involved and was less and less of a threat and the opposition were less and less afraid of him as the tournament went on um, and him alongside Sterling again Raheem Sterling again gets to start a World Cup game for England despite showing absolutely nothing except just disappointment and indecision in every single game that I, I saw him play. So that was a real, that wound me up greatly to see him having another chance. You are wound up. I, see I am wound up. You're, you look tense. Your shoulders look tense. <laughs> I've, I've finally stopped being relaxed. Um, so we just watched a, a little, before we started recording, we watched a little montage of the best goals of the tournament. Yes, we did. And we saw Jesse Lingard's goal again against Panama, which was a very beautiful yeah, goal. And I said that... Uh, Raheem Sterling's little layoff to Jesse Lingard for his goal was probably the only positive contribution he made this whole tournament. Sure, he did a lot of running and he pulled defences around, but then his touches were poor, his decision-making was poor, his finishing was poor, and it was it just smacked of the... of um, I guess you can put a positive and a negative spin. In a positive sense, Gareth Southgate obviously had faith in Raheem Sterling, that maybe he'd come good and... With enough chances, you eventually find a stride and eventually put something away, maybe gain some momentum and he could go on and score more and more and more. But on the negative side, he's just shown so much uh, stubbornness in his decision. Like he maybe he he probably decided his best 11 before the tournament started. And we've seen him stick to that pretty ritualistically, was, uh, besides any injuries or resting players that we did in the last group game against Belgium. So it's like he always knew he was always going to play Sterling no matter what happens. And with players that you've got in reserve, particularly Marcus Rashford, who mercifully did come on for Sterling at half-time, but then even he didn't really show much of what he can do and even what he has shown in this tournament, which is a bit more impetus and a bit more drive and a bit more threat. So yeah, I just think that first half might have gone very differently if we actually had some kind of... um, threat going forward besides a leggy tired Harry Kane who kept dropping right back into midfield just to get a bit of the ball and to get some respite from the defence and Raheem Sterling who you know that could have been Raheem Sterling's 11 year old nephew and he would have done just as much <laughs> just as uh, have just as much of an impact for England at this World Cup but um, yeah I've strayed from what maybe you asked me, and even to the point I can't remember what you asked me. In the no, first I think I think it's a fair a, a fair chance to swap from Harry Kane over to to Eden Hazard. Both are kind oh, of yeah. like one of the key, I suppose, the key attacking players within in their squads, and both were the captains. But you noticed really something really interesting about Eden Hazard when the Belgium team came out, and you were saying how Eden Hazard is the captain. But it is Lukaku who is rallying the squad, who is getting all of the players together, who is pumping them up, getting the team excited. And this comes back to one of our previous discussions about captains, about the role of the captain and whether your captain should be your your Messi or your Hazard or your Harry Kane, you know, your your strongest player or whether the responsibility of the captain is more than just being, you know, your goal scorer. There is an element of leadership there that... Harry Kane wasn't necessarily showing through England, and that Belgium seems to be leaving to Lukaku. Yeah, that is really interesting. I didn't notice that um, and, until I think it was before the semi-finals. I saw it on Instagram, some social media or some social media post that said a, a picture from every single um, huddle before every single Belgium game. The Belgian players are all gathered in a circle, and it's always Lukaku who's in the middle, mm. getting down, getting in his players g'd up. Maybe even saying a prayer. I'm not sure exactly what their their pre-match ritual is, but yeah, it's interesting that what I think the difference between Belgium and the reason one of the reasons Belgium got so far, if we're looking at in terms of leadership, is that sure they gave the captaincy to their most exciting, most influential, most dangerous player, um, just like England did with Harry Kane, like Messi for Argentina, like Ronaldo for Portugal, 
But what uh, Belgium have, that all those other teams I mentioned don't have, is strong leader leadership throughout the squad. Mm. If you didn't give it to Eden Hazard for that sort of impact, um, I think, it goes to someone like Vincent Kompany. Sure, he's, he's had problems with injury and he's getting older and I don't think he played or he started every game for Belgium. But he is a natural leader. Mm. He's led Manchester City to Premier League titles and cup, cup wins. He, he is a natural organiser and a leader. But if you look throughout the rest of that squad, you've got Jan Vertonghen, who is also a very strong organiser and leader from, from the back. And even players like um, Vermaelen, who didn't play that much. He came off the bench, but he's been captain of Arsenal. So they have other players who have the personality to be a leader within that squad. So even if they're not wearing the armband necessarily, they at least have those characters in there to, to bind the team. Whereas if you look at England, I think if the, if the captaincy before the tournament, I think was always going to be between Harry Kane and Jordan Henderson. <laughs> I mean, Jordan Henderson, I've never really liked, but from the first game in this tournament and throughout, I think he, he changed my mind. Yeah. He showed something I'd never seen from him before, which was composure. He always had the work rate, but he actually showed a lot of composure and great range of passing and his skill and decision making was good, which I think he's lacked in the past. Um, but I think he's really developed into a strong player. And he's, he captained Liverpool a lot in the last couple of seasons after Steven Gerrard retired from, from the Liverpool team. So I think between the two of them, you've got somewhat of a leader. I don't think Jordan Henderson is a key enough player to be England captain. Mm. As we've seen, he can be replaced. Eric Dyer's coming for him uh, here and there. And he's not, he's not quite as inspirational, perhaps, as Harry Kane is. But looking throughout the rest of the squad, I don't see anyone else who looks fit to wear the captain's armband for England. There are no great leaders. Gary Cahill, I think, has won the armband for England before and has been captain at Chelsea, um, but always in, the, in, the, in lieu of somebody else. Mm. Like he was vice-captain to John Terry and probably Frank Lampard when he was there too. So there isn't really a strong leader, a strong head in there. Um, I think what surprised me actually is watching that game, because you expect some defend, uh, defensive um, players to be good leaders because they need to organise, they need to be vocal, and a lot more of their game is about this micro-team of the defence. The defence have to be um, in sync with each other in order to function well. So you usually expect to see good leaders in defence. But England, with between Kai Walker, John Stones and Harry Maguire, there isn't really a strong leader there. But what I was surprised by is Kieran Trippier. He was very vocal throughout this tournament, always shouting at his teammates, always trying to organise, always pulling people around, always trying to um, get midfielders in to help him where they should be. So even he's a quite young and experienced player, so you can't, uh, you can never give him a captain's armband, at least not now. Maybe in the future it could be him. But I think that's something that England lacked on the pitch. But I think, I think every one of those England players would have loved it if Gareth Southgate could have been on the pitch. I think you're right. Because yeah, yeah. obviously he wouldn't have the legs to, to play in a World Cup anymore. And he never really was. like He played for England, but he wasn't an amazing defender. Mm. He was a very good Premier League standard defender, but he wasn't. It wasn't the likes of Vincent Company or Thiago yeah. Silva for Brazil or even John Terry or players. It wasn't one of those players. But he is a, what he's displayed amongst throughout this tournament is that he is a leader and he's a general and he has brought this squad together. And if he could have been on the pitch, giving the players a slap on the back and moving people around and have a captain's armband on, yeah. I think maybe England could have been dragged through with uh, Gareth Southgate, the player. But he dragged us all the way to the semi-final as a manager, so I think um, we, it, all, it all came so very close to, to coming together. But if there's one thing I think we do miss, it's a, a bit of class and, and leadership on the pitch. I think you're, you're probably right. Um, I do miss the days of a good captain-manager. You know, like when the when the manager would put themselves on as a player, you don't see it very much anymore. Never, like Glenn Hoddle or yeah. Gianluca Vialli. Yeah, those were like exciting times when you know your manager could just sob himself <laughs> on. You know, like look, guys, you, you you're fucking it up. I'm I'm give me the armband. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. you know. I've even got my kit on. Let me just put my kit on. Yeah, yeah. under then... my, under my waistcoat. Yeah, I've got yeah. my England kit. Gareth takes his waistcoat off. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> If only that would have been a, a that would have been a more exciting. Well, England lost. Belgium so, were better. Yeah, yeah. That 
you know, well, let's carry on in the vein of, of leadership and transfer over to, to the 15th of July, 2018. It's a, a Moscow Sunday, three of the most important leaders in not just world football, but the world itself. Vladimir Putin, France's Emmanuel Macron, and Croatia's Kalinda Grabar Kitrovic. Well done. They all come together in, in Moscow Stadium to watch France versus Croatia. The clash of the titans, the ageing superstar Luka Modric versus the up-and-coming scumbag Mbappe. <laughs> I don't. I don't think he's a scumbag. That's that's a little <laughs> bit too funny. harsh. As adjectives go, that, you know, I should have reeled that one uh, back in somewhat. You love saying scumbag. I, I I just think the world is full of a few of them. But Mbappe's too young to be a, a full scumbag. Fully fledged scumbag. Yeah, he's like his his bag. You know, is it is getting there. But there's time to take some scum out. Yeah, yeah. There's hope for him yet. There is. Does the World Cup final, the most exciting part of you know four years of, of tension and has built up built up to this moment. It's twenty years since France last won the World Cup in France. It was football, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> That's where I come in. Yeah. I, I was so glad that this was a good game of football. Mm. I think it would have been I think it would have been out of character for the tournament if we'd got through all that excitement and surprises and all the weird shit that's happened at this tournament on the, on in terms of football and then it ended up in like a nil-nil or one-nil or something. So it was really exciting to see that at least some goals started, that some goals started flying in. What was it, 2-1 at halftime? Already three goals and then who are we to know we're going to get three more in the second half? So that's exactly what you want from a World Cup final. That's that's um, not only as it's the, the, the logical ending point of a knockout tournament where you get two teams left and whoever wins, wins the trophy... It was it was like the Super Bowl. It was you know like some great sporting occasion where it was entertainment. Yeah. It was magical and it was downright bizarre at times. And there was heartbreak and contro- controversy and moments of magic that it, it had everything that a World Cup final should should have. And I think it would be you'd be hard pushed to find anyone who said that France maybe didn't deserve it. I mean I know they had a lot of luck, mm. a couple of very lucky decisions which end up going to goals which decisions can always go against you and they can have sort of a ripple effect on how the game goes but when Croatia uh, uh, a foul foul is awarded against Croatia which is not really a foul Griezmann goes down far too easily a lot of what we've seen at this tournament a lot of what we talked about at this tournament this weak um, gamesmanship but I hate to like to sigh and be like, well, that's football, which because it shouldn't be, and it kind of ruins it for everyone, and especially ruined it for Croatia in this case, yes. where he wins a free kick in a dangerous area, dangerous ball was played in, it's defended very oddly by Croatia, where they played a very deep line, really close to the goalkeeper. So as the ball comes in, whatever happens in the in that fracas in the box, the keeper's got no time to react. But if it, if it's a flick on from a header that it ends up being from his own player, he's got no time to react. So and any football pundit would was uh, would have told you that that line needs to be way higher, right up on the edge of the box, so there's room between the keeper and and the outfield players, so so the keeper can come and collect it if it goes too deep or if it lands in that area and a header comes in or a shot comes in, the keeper's got room to do something and the defence have got room to react. So it's real real strange that a soft free kick follows odds defending, which leads to an own goal. So there's so much. I mean, you could say it's bad luck on Croatia's part, but they, maybe they should have defended it better in the first place. And then another unlucky decision where VAR awards a penalty for a handball that I don't think that you'll find anyone outside of France who would call that stonewall penalty or a clear and obvious error, which is the whole reason why VAR is supposed to be employed as if, you know, it was, if it was an obvious handball or violent conduct or whatever the other categories are. Whereas this was very much a case of, well, sure, it hit his hand, but... There's no way he could have known the ball was going to go there. The France player Matuidi was right in front of him, who should have made the header but didn't. And then Perisic's hand is down by his side, comes up a little bit, but not really that much. So that's, again, a little bit harsh on Croatia and France again capitalised. Griezmann tucking away the penalty. But Croatia, at least they, they played like they were always had a chance. Yes. They never once gave up. They, they fought all the way to the end. 
And there was an interesting tidbit, I think, uh, Martin Keown in commentary said that with all the extra times that Croatia have had to go through in the semi-final, the, not the semi-final, because that was England. Uh, no, they did. They did was go. that extra time? Yeah. There yeah, was extra yeah. time, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So the extra time against England, the extra time in the quarterfinal, the extra time in the round of 16, yeah. with penalties as well in those last... They played a whole extra 30, match. They played a whole extra match yeah. as well for football. And yet they didn't really look to tire. Mm. They grew into the game, and by the end of the game, they had two-thirds of the possession. Whereas you can imagine many other teams, like we saw with England, like they, they didn't play anywhere near as much football, but they were getting to the you know, 75, 80-minute mark in the last couple of games, and their legs just went. They couldn't keep it going. So however, Croatia, where they got this energy from, was amazing. And it, again, added to the, the drama of the final, where even when France were 4-1 uh, up, sorry, with Mbappe's goal, um, France, uh, Croatia never once stopped. And when they got that lucky goal, when Hugo Lloris, what he was, that was playing yeah, yeah. I don't know what he was doing there. But if you're going to make an awful mistake in the World Cup final, that cost your team a goal. Do it when you're 4-1 up. I think that's safe. Yeah. That seems a yeah. Especially, where was that? That was in the 69th minute. So 20 minutes to go, you're 4-1 up. Try and, try and nutmeg uh, a world-class goal scorer like Mandzukic in, in your own box, Hugo, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> so no one's going to remember that, thankfully, especially as he's the captain and mm-hmm. he went on to lift the trophy. So he, he, got, he got fairly lucky there. But yeah, Croatia never stopped. And I think they will go home as heroes in their country. And they've inspired, I think, a lot of football fans generally. Uh, we, we enjoyed watching that final, but Croatia were very, very worthy um, runners-up. Yes. And w- while they maybe didn't do enough to win, they had a lot of shots, a lot of attempts, but France ended up having more on target. And I think they just had that, the quality and the, the exuberance that Croatia didn't have yeah. with those exciting players, like uh, Mbappe and Pogba finally coming of his own. Like we've, I think I, we've said... I said to you once, I think in a message when we were both simul watching a France game, yeah. that it must be frustrating for, the, for Man United and for France with Paul Pogba when you have a player who is world class about one and a half to two games out of every ten games that he plays in. And he's gradually grown into this tournament and he culminated it with this a world, a world class performance in this final. And something is, from having played football all my life, the pass that he made to Mbappe when he was, that through ball that led to Pogba's goal, that to me is more satisfying than scoring a goal. Mm. Like if I pulled that off, that was Steven Gerrard in his prime-esque. That's Pirlo. That was the best foot pass. Paul Scholes, that's like the best passes of all time aimed to hit passes like that. That was absolute quality. And the way he followed the pass in and he gets a bit of luck, gets a couple of bites at the cherry and gets his goal. It's, um, yeah, it was great to see a player like that because that's the sort of thing that Luka Modric can do for Croatia, but he doesn't really have didn't really have the outlets to hit. He had Perisic, he has Mandzukic up top, but if I think if if you can imagine killing Mbappe in a Real Madrid shirt, Modric will be pinging those balls out to him all day. Or yeah, so maybe he misses having someone like that who can run onto absolutely anything to match the kind of quality. I've seen um, after that World Cup final when Modric wins the Player of the Tournament, which I think is is fair. He's, um, he's basically like a defensive midfielder, a central midfielder, and a number 10, all in one. He's doing all those roles for mm. himself. And even though he's got Rakitic playing alongside him in midfield, he's another world-class midfield player, central midfield player. I don't really remember much of Rakitic's game, apart from falling over it easily to win free kicks. Oh. But it was a good World Cup final. That was a fantastic conclusion, Dave. Thank you for your book report. And now, <laughs> I look forward to my C minus. Yeah, I, one of the things that I really liked was um, when Modric gets the um, the award for Player of the Tournament, which again goes to the the captain that loses the World Cup final again, yeah. as with uh, Messi in the last tournament. Um, this time, Modric goes up uh, to to get his. Uh, to get his, but I suppose they get a trophy, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a golden ball or something. Yeah, but he's still heartbroken. He's just one player of the tournament, but his country just lost the World Cup final. And he goes up, and the president of Croatia, uh, Graba Kritrovic, I'm just going to call her GK from now on. GK. To save, uh, to save any mispronunciations. <laughs> GK wipes his tears away. Oh. And 
with what pride? Because she she's the president of uh, of Croatia, and she's not there in you know in presidential attire, the same way that Macron is there in full suit. Yeah. Um, GK is there in her Croatia Croatia jersey, her, her team shirt. She wipes away the tears. That's what a leader should be doing. Hell you know, yeah. the, the the warring hero. He's been defeated, but he's the, he's the man of the moment nonetheless. I think it's interesting that Modric wins player of the tournament as well because Mbappe is the one everyone's been talking about. Hmm. Well, um, that's why they have a young player of the tournament. Which he wins. Which he does win. Yeah. So, which is fair. He may well win the other one this one year. Maybe the next year. The yeah. next tournament. So there was good... Uh, yeah. Fair play to Modric. This could very well be his last World Cup. And one of the problems I think that he's always had is he is world class, but he's always, like, it's not really since he was at Spurs that he was, like, the guy in the squad, right? Like, he goes to Real Madrid, and then it's, oh, but there's Gareth Bale. Oh, and there's Ronaldo. Oh, and, like, Luke, where does little Luka Modric get his... Sure, but I think he's, over the last, he's grown into, before the tournament, at least as the tournament's gone on, I think he can generally be considered as the best central midfield player at the moment right now. Right. And in the last couple of years, especially for Real Madrid. Um, since that, the era of like Xavi and Iniesta at Barcelona has sort of faded away, they but now they've both gone off to play in Asia, I think, haven't they? Xavi and Iniesta. So yeah. that, that shadow is now ready for someone to step into. And Modric, I think, has already been doing it for, for a few years. Yeah, and it's... When he left Spurs, I thought it was a shame because I loved watching him play. Yeah. He was such a classy player, but you know he's really developed into yeah what I think is probably the best central midfield player in the world right now. And how old is he? He's got to be like only thirty early thirty two. I think thirty two. Yeah. So he may well still could play a role in the next World Cup, and you'd hope to see him in the next European Championships. And yeah, he'll he'll still be a shining light for Real Madrid, no doubt. Well, let's go back to uh, to talking about the 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 nations themselves. We had. Uh, GK, Kalinda Grubba Kitrovic, the first female president uh, of Croatia. Also, interestingly, the first female president of any country to beat an incumbent president. That sounds unwieldy, but basically, if you are already the prime minister or you are already the president, it is essentially guaranteed that you will win the next election. It's very rare for a sitting prime minister or sitting president to be dethroned, essentially. Mm. It does happen, but normally um, it will be, for example, your your president retires. And then after that retirement, the, his party will then be beaten by the, the subsequent party. So what's interesting about Kitrovic is that she actually beat the, the former president to become president herself. Mm. Um, the first female president to do that in Europe, which is pretty exciting. Uh, she's conservative in the, both economically and somewhat socially. I think it's a difficult time to be a European conservative at, at, at this point in time. Um, because the things that you could say if you were an American conservative at this time, you can't really say in Europe. For example, you can't say... Nah, gay people, I just don't like it. <laughs> Which, of course, in America, you can. You, it's very difficult, unless you're in Ireland, to say, abortion, no, I, don't, I just don't like it. Mm. Um, it's only really in the, the ultra-religious countries, especially Catholic countries, that you can say things like that. Um, so GK, uh, she, she is against same-sex marriage. That is something that she is, is actively against. But oh, she, but she supported the the Croatian Life Partnership Act, which uh, allows same sex couples, LGBT couples, to enjoy equal rights to the hetero, like to straight married couples, even if they can't get married themselves. Basically, mm. uh, she in her inauguration speech she spoke about sexual orientation and, and gay rights, and she has openly said that if her son was gay. She would support him. So, I, I guess that's good. I, I, I guess. Suppose. Yeah, yeah, I can back her on that. It's yeah. You know I, how difficult it must be, even as a leader of a country. They must have so many personal views. Yes. That you can't necessarily just step out and go. Actually, yeah. I believe this, but 
we, we're never going to get there. Mm. And I thought I would, it must be so difficult to worry about turning so many people off and upsetting the, the electorate by just being completely honest about what you actually yeah. believe. Well, I think it was Ab- Abraham Lincoln said that there must always be two sides to the politician, the personal and the public. Ah. And uh, a politician should not necessarily have um, the same views in public that they have in person. And I know that the Clintons in America were both big supporters of that because, uh, again, Hillary Clinton especially was well known for uh, for switching her political views to whatever was popular at the moment. Hmm. Um, so what she held personally was very different to what she held publicly. But for Hillary Clinton, that definitely made sense because she, her personal life was constantly under scrutiny for you know her husband sexing other people um and so on and various other controversies as well i did not have sexual relations with that woman and he did (laughs) but i am wearing her underwear (laughs) so terrible bill jack impression so that uh yeah grubba kutrovich uh you know she's in favor of of abortion uh, she agrees that climate change is... She's very much a European conservative without going so far. It's difficult, again, to say the word conservative these days without going alt-right. She is a traditional European conservative in, in most cases. Um, and what was really great in, this, uh, in uh, this situation was her and Macron being together and showing a kind of unity in as you have the leader of Croatia, the leader of France, they are there together. They're they're opening, holding that they're, they're holding hands together as they come out, showing a unity between two European countries, two very beautiful people. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, as as they they come out together, which is something not shown by the Russian president Vladimir Putin. Um, you have. You have Macron and, and G.K. Kutrovich. They come out together. They show you a, a world unity. And then you have uh, Putin, who, when it starts to rain, stands under his own umbrella while the other two world leaders just get drenched. Uh, brilliant. So uh, I, why, why don't you, you, you describe exactly what it is that happened? Uh, that, it was so funny that the, throughout the game, they were talking about this storm that had been brought, uh, forecast before kickoff, and or maybe it'll maybe it'll come over during the match and add a whole new element to it, um, like rain. Really, it's not like a, a Formula One race where uh-huh. if it starts to rain, they all have to dive into the pits and change their tires. It's not like the players going to run it over and change their boots if it starts to rain, and then suddenly the game's going to be different. But yeah, after um, some delays during the game, which I know we're going to talk about later, uh, it seemed like after the final whistle and France was celebrating, there was a bit of a delay between. Uh, the fat final whistle, no celebrations, and the trophy actually being presented and brought out, and probably just because of that security glitch, uh, they wanted to be extra sure and not let Philip Lahm walk out onto the pitch holding the, the Jules Rimet trophy if uh, if maybe it get nicked. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> Someone <laughs> runs up to him, just grabs it, and legs it. And it's going to be like the sense where Mo is going to come down with the fan, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then steal it to take away. That would have been brilliant, but you know, I'm sure that person would have been snipered. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, so there's a bit of a delay anyway, and then by the time they finally get the stage out and the trophy up and the leaders out on the stage and all the like Qatar Airways stewardesses holding yes. all of the trophy, uh, all the medals, and uh, then the heavens open, and uh, there was a few close-ups of these stewardesses standing there, all beautifully made up, very uh, statuesque and and pretty and then suddenly they're just getting absolutely drenched and just like blinking and flinching as every raindrop hits them in the face and of course the Putin's bodyguards or aides or whatever you want to call them mates (laughs) are very quick to whip out an umbrella and protect him from uh, the onslaught from above but then he just stands there looking at Macron and uh, Our Lady GK just getting absolutely sodden by the rain Nothing happens. I think eventually maybe some bodies got brought over. Yeah. But apparently uh, they weren't paying much attention to the weather forecast. I just didn't think it was going to be needed. But it was just so great how neither the French president or... Is it president or prime minister? President. French president and uh, and GK cared. It was... They were just so happy. Even the the losing... uh, The prime minister of the losing team... uh, President of the losing team 
just seemed so thrilled to be there and she was so proud and so happy and she embraced every player yeah. that walked past her whether they be French or Croatian um, and it was just, it was just such a nice it was nice wasn't it nice it was nice it was really and, nice yeah. even with all that rain and and then obviously <laughs> when uh, Hugo you know and the France players lift the trophy and all the confetti blows in, up into the sky it all just falls back down and the sticks to all their faces <laughs> And they're all like trying to go, <laughs> blowing it out of their eyes and their mouths, and yeah. it was a bit of a farce. But at that point, who cares? The France players are skidding across the ground. Yeah. Particularly, I laughed at but Bernard Mendy being like grabbing the trophy and tying a France flag uh, scarf around his head and doing like Klinsmann's through the wet turf. <laughs> and he's played. He won. He's now won the World Cup and he won the Premier League title with Man City this season, uh-huh. having played a total of seven games throughout both campaigns. And he's there like, woo! I did it! Yeah. I'm a winner! Well, yeah, enjoy it, Bernard. Why not? You, you were there, I suppose. You were chosen. You seem quite, you know, almost affronted by that. As if, you know when you see a, a rival, an old friend from school or something, successful, you're like, I could have done that. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you were like, I could have played seven <laughs> games this season and won and the won Premier the League Cup. and the World Cup. Well, in contrast... It's what was brilliant. Another story that came out of that moment where the more confident and ostentatious players like Paul Pogba grabbing hold of the trophy and posing for the cameras and dancing and sliding yeah. around. And Golo Kante, undoubtedly one of the, uh, France's key players this whole tournament, arguably Paul Pogba couldn't have been released to um, show his full potential if he didn't have someone beside him like Kante to be more disciplined, to be a screen in front of the defence and allow Pogba to wander forward. He's such a he's such a, a adorably um, shy and humble person that he didn't want to take any of the joy away from his teammates. So he never once went up to the trophy to hold it and kiss it and take a picture until one of his teammates, can't remember who it was, so just pulled him over, took the trophy off somebody and gave it to him <laughs> so that he could at least hold it and get a picture and smile with it. It's like, oh, you're so adorable. That's really nice. This is the guy who, despite being paid very very handsomely at Chelsea he still drives a Mini Cooper like right. he, he won't go yeah. buy a Lamborghini or an yeah. Aston Martin he's just happy to drive his little Mini he probably lives in a flat yeah, yeah, he, yeah he's just such a like he's he's what footballers should be mm-hmm. in in his in the way he just is very aware of where he is and where he comes from and you know how lucky and fortunate he is like two years ago three years ago he was playing in uh, Ligue 2 in the French, in the, in France, and then following year he's playing in Ligue 1 yeah. for uh, a French team that I forget. Then he gets signed for Leicester as one of their key players in their miraculous winning of the Premier League. Then he moves to Chelsea and he wins the Premier League again. Not so lucky this season with Man City running rampant, but for one of the best players in his position, if not the best player in the position, he, he looks like he's just there. He just likes playing football. Yeah. He's like, people pay me to play football. That's nice. <laughs> I get to go to Russia to play football. That's nice. Yeah. Oh look, he won a trophy. That's nice. But yeah, that's. I think that's the kind of person that you would hope your Pogba and your Mbappe would be taking their cues from. Mm. Right. That 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 would be kind of you know. You're right. That is the kind of football that you know the what we are the kind of role model we would like to see coming out for football. Definitely. Um, and. Again, Macron, as you were saying about um, GK embracing all of her players, uh, I think Macron kissed every single one of the players that he could. <laughs> um, he gave uh, he gave Mbappe and Griezmann kisses on their foreheads uh, as they as they get their medals. <laughs> uh, I think he just he just really wanted to kiss people, you know. Yeah, but one thing that I always I find weird when world leaders attend sporting events is like. Do they have nothing else to do? Or is this like they booked holiday for this? Like he, he could have gone off. To, I don't know if, if, if uh, any leaders besides American ones play golf on their holidays. But could Macron have booked this day off and thought, maybe I'll go play golf. Oh, the World Cup finals on in France are there. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I I'll, guess just, I'll, I'll call that. up my pal Vlad. Yeah. And I'm sure he'll get me a ticket up in that fancy bit. Well, that is part of the... I'm going to get very boring and political with you now. Oh, boy. But that is part of the role of the president, which we don't have in the UK because we have a constitutional monarchy. So our actual head of state is the queen. The queen is, in that role as head of state, um, is 
essentially an ambassador to the rest of the world, where she is not in charge of the policy being enacted in Parliament. That is the role of the Prime Minister. So in France, they have a president and a Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister sits in Parliament, basically, and he is the head of the government and make sure that the government enacts what they are supposed to enact, where the, the they are supposed to kind of do what the president suggests, but the president doesn't actually, as in America with Trump, Trump doesn't go into the Senate and make policy. The government is supposed, like, the Senate is supposed to kind of enact the policies that he wants them to, but he is not the person in charge of getting those policies uh, enacted, which means that Trump can go on, you know, 10-day golf tournaments, whereas Mitch McConnell, the, the head of the Senate, who is all, he is an actual scumbag, but he cannot go and play golf every day because he has to do the nitty-gritty pulling everything together job. So that's kind of why your presidents can go to all of these sporting events. Um, I suppose Theresa May probably would have, you know, would have gone if England made it. It tends to be uh, what's it, uh, the princes tend to go to more of these things. Yes. Yeah. Well, Prince William is one of the uh, directors of the FA or heads of the FA. Is he? That's yeah. not a surprise. Yeah, because that's the kind of the that head of state role that they can. You know, they're an ambassador that represents the country, yeah. which is kind of a lot of what the, what the presidents do um, in this case, but not so much in the case of Putin, who is everything because he's not. He's a dictator. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it. He is a, in, oh, right. in every way that counts. He, he is a dictator. The Russian Secret Service are moving in on us, right, as we speak. Come on, FSB. Uh, you, you can upload all the videos of me getting prostitutes to pee on Obama's <laughs> bed. I don't even care. Um, a slight diversion. But, but not particularly, because while we're talking about Putin, we can talk about the interruption that happened um, in the match. Uh, again, I didn't get to watch the match because I was sitting outside of Bangkok Airport on the plane. They wouldn't let me off the plane to watch the World Cup. I had to sit there and wait. <laughs> it doesn't matter how hard you begged. Please. Yeah, please, the World Cup is on. I'm I've sorry. got a podcast and everything. Yeah, I've got a podcast to record. Damn it! <laughs> they they wouldn't let me off, so I didn't see what happened. But yeah, so what what happened? I, it was really bizarre. I can't remember what the when, when in the game it it happened, but it looked like. Because all the people who ran onto the pitch were wearing uniforms. They were all wearing white, uh, white shirts tucked into their slacks and little, um, little ties and uh, military-looking hats. So it, initially, I thought they were chasing somebody else. I thought they were the guys, the actual police, who were chasing off an actual pitch invader. Right. But then when you see more of them moving around the pitch, you're like, oh, those, those are the guys. And it's the guys in the high-vis jackets chasing after them who were the stewards. Right. And so it was all very bizarre. I think it did turn out that they were wearing police uniforms, but uh, they do what they always do in, in these things are televised. They very quickly try and find uh, a camera angle that they're not in and just focus on, say, a couple of players standing over in the corner of the pitch or, or just get some people in the crowd or, or whatnot. And the, the uh, commentators do their best to divert attention from them. But uh, yeah, it turns out it wasn't just uh, random fans or uh, or maybe police who are uh, off duty who yeah. had one to one or too many budweisers yeah there was uh, something more going on wasn't there it was the russian feminist punk band pussy riot pussy riot pussy riot they are probably the most famous punk band of today and mm. i don't think that anyone could name a single one of their songs um no no which is which is really interesting there there are more essentially more activists with you know with a soundtrack I think that they, that they are a punk band. But Pussy Riot, infamously in, in 2012, well, infamously if you are the Russian Orthodox Church, um, infamously they, they bust into a cathedral and lay down a whole bunch of music that the Russian Orthodox Church says is, is blasphemous. Um, they were arrested and imprisoned for spreading religious hate. Oh, there was a particular quote here, wasn't there, that I, I really liked. What was it? Is that the same? Did they also strip naked or was that a different time? I'm, you know, frankly, Pussy Riot have done so many ridiculous things. They've done it's... a lot of naked stuff. I'm not saying that's the only reason I know I've heard of them, but they definitely have done naked stuff. Oh, where was it? Uh... Oh, God damn it. Steve, edit this out. <laughs> no, Steve, build the tension. 
It is it is tension. Control F. <laughs> That's the problem, is that the phrase hooliganism is used so much in this. General <laughs> hooliganism, criminal code for hooliganism. Wasn't it um premeditated hooliganism? Well it was, but now you I've you've destroyed my chance to say premeditated <laughs> hooliganism. Oh sorry, I thought you were you'd forgotten it. I, I well I had it. forgotten it, but I was gonna find it again. I was I was just being helpful. There it is. It was the, the fucking the last one. <laughs> yes, uh, after after their uh, their arrest within uh, within the Russian Orthodox Church, they were charged with premeditated hooliganism, uh, performed by an organized group of people motivated by religious hatred or hostility. So they were charged with religious hatred because it was within the Orthodox Church, and they uh, the song included the lyric, "Holy shit." And the Russian Orthodox Church found that very insulting because wow. holy, it, they, they didn't mean that the shit had holes in it, basically. <laughs> uh, they said that actually if you listen to the song when you take it within the context of the previous verse, holy shit doesn't mean that. But another one of their songs do involve the Orthodox Church being an erect penis. So, it, it, you know, they can't flat out say, no, we're not against the Orthodox Church because a lot of their other songs do have... Uh, the, they, play, uh, they play up the fact that the Orthodox Church is part of the Russian patriarchy that is used to, uh, to, to keep the, the Russian women down. And I, you know, they're not wrong. They're mm-hmm. not wrong about that. But that's the kind of stuff you can't generally say um, in, in Putin's Russia. So uh, after that, it was only two... Pussy Riot uh, is is a number of, of women in, in that band, but only two of them and uh, one of the husbands, I think, of, of Pussy Riot uh, ran out onto the pitch for this match. The uh, Another member, uh, what's her name? Let me find her name quickly. Uh, Maria Alakahina. I'm sorry about my, my pronunciation there. That's probably horrible. But Maria, she spoke exclusively to Britain's The Independent um, to say that this... Uh, this protest was trying to show the hypocrisy of Putin's re- regime because the Russian people, uh, because the celebration of the World Cup is happening at the same time as tortures in police stations and tortures in prison, she says. Uh, it's our responsibility to raise attention to these topics. Um, and I thought that this was this was interesting because this is exactly what we were talking about at the beginning of the World Cup. We were talking about how Russia is this uh, politically stunted society whereby if you make comments like this, generally you get whacked. <laughs> um, and I think the only thing that's kept Pussy Riot alive is that there are more than one of them and that they continuously do these ridiculously yeah. public... Uh, protests. I mean, the whole world is is watching this now. If Pussy Riot were to accidentally get pushed off a bridge, uh, <laughs> like you know, all of them at once, all of them. What at are they all doing on that bridge? Protesting. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> the bridge represents the Russian patriarchy. Of course. Oh no. Oh <laughs> um, yeah, you say the whole world's watching. Just uh, the BBC. Oh, just the BBC had forty four point five million viewers. That's amazing. Just the BBC. Yeah. We talk about the figures um, who watch things like the Super Bowl, and it's in like the uh, maybe in the triple digit hundreds, uh, triple digit millions, yeah. hundreds of millions. But yeah. then just on one channel in one country, it's forty four and a half million people. Yeah, yeah, so that that really is amazing. It's it's again that thing of football is a a world religion. Mm. Um, and as we know, Pussy Riot, very famous for taking stances against organized religion. Whoa. So they're, they're here in another church, you know, the church of football in the, the stadium, the final of, of the World Cup. The Pope is basically there. Yeah. You know, the FIFA president is there. The Pope of football. The Pope of football. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're ever going to make a, uh, make a statement, this is, this is the place to do it. So uh, they they were sent to prison for fifteen days. You know they'll be out. They'll do it again, assuming they don't get whacked. <laughs> but if it should they, uh, you know, should an accident befall them, I think there would be a, a a large international outcry, and especially within Russia, they do have quite a lot of support within Russia. Mm. As uh, people like that, they're saying stuff. 
they just don't necessarily agree with what it is that they're saying. Yeah, maybe not everyone is up for them getting naked in Orthodox churches and playing blasphemous music, but I imagine they're probably capturing a, um, you know, a lot of um, attention from the, the young people in, in Russia who are perhaps a, lot, a bit less traditionalist. And yeah, maybe they're looking at what generations have gone by have, have uh, seen in Russia and be like, well, hang on, this is not cool, man. We're, yeah. we're the generation of Russians who are on social media and yeah. and speak learned English at school and watch American movies and we've realised that maybe the way this country is run is messed up. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be an interesting dynamic within within Russia whereby Putin has been the, the president for so long now. It is, I think, it is difficult for there not to have been some level of indoctrination whereby uh, you know there's a reason that the younger generations haven't overthrown him yet. And it almost happened. It almost happened um, in one of the previous elections. But then everything turned around again. He's He came close to losing power. And the way he kind of... Um, the way he kind of regained it was by attacking Hillary Clinton. After Putin, uh, Putin was elected president again, and the election was pretty controversial, and there were large protests against it, uh, and Hillary Clinton came out and said, uh, "In America, we are very, um, uh, you know, we uh, are watching this closely. It appears that there has been meddling in the election. That democracy in Russia is being compromised by by Putin, and Putin used that as a show of American interference within Russian elections wow. to say the Americans, why can't the Americans leave us alone? Let us do our own thing." And now you have Russia interfering in the American elections and they can tie it all back to the Americans interfering in theirs and saying, we're not doing anything that they didn't yeah, do. Yeah, you did it first. Yeah. Um, whereas when, when the last time that Putin was, was elected, America criticised it. This time, the election, uh, a matter of months ago, uh, Trump congratulated Putin. There is a big difference between American criticism of the election and uh, Trump was given notes from the White House, from his own stuff, in capital letters saying, do not congratulate Putin. Because if they do, it is a show. Because everyone knows the Russian democracy is compromised. Mm. And if the president uh, congratulates him, it is a show of authentication. It is saying a suggestion that this was a free and fair election. And congratulations, you won it with the support of the Russian people. Um, but Trump just doesn't get that stuff. And uh, <laughs> Pussy Riot, uh, one of their more recent songs was Make America Great Again. So they're not just criticizing Putin. Yeah. They, they are as, as anti- I can't see anything here that's anti-Obama. So, uh, um, and also Kill the Sexist, another Pussy Riot song that I don't think it was written about Trump, but... Uh, it could be to him. It very well. It, very easy, it could, <laughs> quite, quite easily, yeah. Okay, the World Cup is is finished, and and thus, <gasps> uh, what are we going to do? I don't know. Sleep for four years. That sounds like a fantastic. Actually, that sounds great. Yeah. All right. No, All right. No, no, that was easy. High five. High five. Well, thank you guys for for listening to Who Watches the World Cup. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed you enjoyed uh, the tournament and our commentary of it. Uh, if you would like to leave any any comments or any suggestions for another podcast that we can do, please uh, please do. It's a shame that Wimbledon has already finished because who watches Wimbledon would yeah, have been fantastic. Maybe we should do levels of alliteration. It's quite pleasing. I do enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. So thank you very much for listening, and hopefully we will we'll see you again. Bye. <laughs>